Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and it was my privilege to continue our series of messages on the Gospel according to Mark, today looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 27. Let's get started. Well, first I want to thank uh, Phil and Vicky and the rest of the team. Um, it's just love those old hymns. But we're going to have to do something with the architecture. If we have groups like this up here, we're going to need more space. <laughs> Ah, it's so good to be in the Lord's presence. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we do thank You. Thank You for Your grace, for the wonder of Your nearness. Thank You, Lord. Just now, thank You for Your Word that has revealed Your nature, your will, your purpose to us, especially has revealed Jesus to us. Father, we thank you. And just ask now that you would minister to each and every one of us, that as we share your word together this morning, that you would work within us Lord, You alone know the work that is necessary in each of our hearts and in each of our lives that we might be pleasing in Your sight, that we might accomplish those things that You have called us to do. So, Lord, work in us by Your Holy Spirit that the name of Jesus might be exalted both here and in our lives as we part. And we thank you for it all because of Jesus. Amen. We have the privilege of looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark over these last couple of months. And you know, you get the impression Jesus was causing quite a stir. Um, from the beginnings of His ministry in the backwater towns of Galilee, I'm sure that had they been available, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram would have been abuzz with reports of His teachings and of the healings and deliverances that He was accomplishing. But we do know that some of those reports came to the attention of those in authority, both the Roman authorities and the religious authorities, uh, so that some of them at least started keeping a pretty close watch on what he was doing. And then something like three years into his public ministry, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And he did it 
just outside Jerusalem, just when the Passover crowds were swelling the population of that city. And I expect that the Roman military, as well as the temple authorities, were disturbed by that event. And then Jesus had the nerve to enter the city in a dramatic enactment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All through his public ministry, Jesus was teaching and demonstrating who he is. Sometimes he spoke directly, as in John 8, where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I am, if you remember Exodus 3, I am is the name of our God that he gave to himself. He is the self-existent one. So, Jesus is proclaiming that He is God. But most often, Jesus spoke of His identity and His mission using quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. Using passages that His first hearers would have immediately recognized. And his entry into Jerusalem that day was one of those actions that none of the Jews there would have missed. He was openly declaring and his authority and his identity as the promised king, the Messiah. So it's not surprising that Jesus was challenged by the authorities. They understood what Jesus was doing and saying, and they didn't like it because he was challenging their authority. In 1887, Lord Acton summarized the issue when he observed that power tends to corrupt And absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more when you super add the tendency of the certainty of corruption by authority. And we see this being acted out all over the world today. Just as it was in Jesus' time. Last week, David briefly outlined 
the first challenge of the temple leadership to Jesus from Mark 11:27. But because the people, the, the elders, the chief priests, and the Pharisees were unwilling to commit themselves to following the God they claimed to serve, Jesus declined to answer their challenge directly. But then, before they could turn away, Jesus addressed them, and no doubt the gathering crowd, with a parable. Now, this parable is unusual in that it is an allegory. And nearly every element of the story has meaning. Mark 12, in verse 1, he began to teach them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent, again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Again, these folk who were challenging Jesus would immediately have recognized what Jesus said as in large part a retelling of a parable that the prophet Isaiah had declared something like 800 years earlier. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1. Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Doesn't that sound just like what Jesus was saying? And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Wild grapes. 
Now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns will grow up. And I will also command the clouds that there rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are His pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, apart from the passage of 800 years, including the exile of the people of Judah and their restoration to the land, apart from that, the major difference between Isaiah's song and the parable of Jesus is that Jesus points his righteous finger at the tenant farmers rather than at the vine itself. And the temple leadership, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, recognize themselves in Jesus' words. They were the ones God had commissioned to tend the vine. And if Israel and Judah were guilty of apostasy, it was because of their failed leadership. Over the centuries, repeatedly, God had sent His servants the prophets, to the Jewish leadership. But they had not listened or obeyed. As Stephen said a few months later, which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. In Jesus' parable, the vineyard owner had sent his servants repeatedly to obtain a portion of the harvest according to the terms of the lease. And repeatedly, these servants were beaten or killed, as had been the case for the, with the prophets and John the Baptist before Jesus. And now a beloved son had been sent. And Jesus knew full well that he would be killed. The tenant farmers in Jesus' story thought that with the heir of the owner out of the way, they could claim ownership of the vineyard according to ancient law. But they'd not counted on the owner's response nor his determination to give the vineyard to others. They couldn't understand who was better suited to lead the people. They couldn't imagine that anyone was better than they. So to be removed from office was simply unthinkable. When Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem a couple of days earlier, the crowds had shouted from Psalm 118, 25 and 26, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. But now Jesus quotes from another couple of verses in the same psalm. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you ever had the uh, experience where you heard a story being told when it suddenly dawned on you that this is more than a story. That the fictional characters have a real life component and that the story is focused on you. Do you remember back in 2 Samuel, the story of David and Bathsheba? David had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. And Nathan the prophet came to David and told a story about a, a poor man's sheep and how the rich, his rich neighbor had simply taken it rather than sacrifice one of his own sheep. David got all up in arms about this. But then Nathan said, Are that man? David, to his credit, realized his sin and repented. But here this day in Jerusalem, these guys were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people because they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And the problem was, power corrupts. They were bent on holding on to their power and authority at any cost. And since they saw no way to beat Jesus at his own game, killing him had become the only answer. They'd been backed into a corner. And that was a good thing. Jesus sometimes needs to back us into a corner as well. And he takes away every argument, every excuse, every prop that holds our lives together so that we have... So the only options that are left to us are either to make Him our Lord or reject Him. I know that in His great love, He did that, exactly that, for me. So do not let your response to Jesus be like these men. Rather, be like David and recognize that you have fallen short. You are guilty. Jesus holds the key to your future and to those who will and to those who will fall on him. He is a loving shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. He's not a harsh judge. But to those who reject him, there is eternal death and separation from all that is good. So which option will you choose? Remember that 
Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. Just because the world rejects Him does not mean that Jesus is not exactly who He says He is. Another group approached Jesus to challenge Him. And this was a really unlikely group. You've got the Pharisees on one side, and then the Herodians on the other. The Pharisees prided themselves in their diligence in keeping the whole of the law and the prophets according to the traditions of the elders. As a consequence, they rankled under the Roman occupation of the nation. Because in their view, these Gentile Romans were idolaters. They were Caesar worshippers, among other gods. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, these people could not ever be legitimate rulers of Israel. On the other hand, the Herodians were very supportive of the Roman occupation. And they prospered under the stable government that Rome provided. That these two groups could agree on anything was something of a miracle in itself. And that speaks of the impact that Jesus was having on society. Mark 12 and verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to him, Render to Caesar the thing God's. And they marveled at him. Now these... These folk thought they had Jesus cornered. If he said, do not pay, the Herodians would be quick to have him brought up on charges of treason. And that would be punishable by death. But if he said, pay the taxes, many of his disciples would likely walk away. And either way, they'd be free of the influence of Jesus. Now, this tax was a relatively small amount. It was a day's wage each year. But the coin that was required, I mean, you're paying taxes to Rome, you have to pay it in Roman currency. The coin that was required bore not only the image of Tiberius, but the inscription, 
Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, which made Tiberius something of a demigod. On the other side of the coin, his title was given as Pontifex Maximus, or highest priest. And that side of the coin also had an image of his mother Lydia, described as the goddess Pax, or Peace. Now, to a Pharisee, those kinds of blasphemous claims could not be tolerated. The image of Caesar was bad enough, but to, be, to claim to be the son of a god, as well as high priest, was way beyond blasphemy. And as usual, Jesus' answer is masterful. His request, bring me a denarius, forced someone in the crowd to open their money bag and present the coin to him. Now, Jesus didn't say it. But the fact that someone in the crowd had one of these blasphemous coins with them in the temple precincts suggested they were, that they were not so troubled by their question as they pretended to be. And Jesus' final word on the subject Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's has proved to be very useful and controversial throughout the ages. It raises two questions that have to be answered by each of us. What is it that legitimately belongs to God, to Caesar? And what is it that legitimately belongs to God? Now, if you look through the Scriptures, you'll find that the legitimate role of government is fairly limited. For example, in Romans 13, Paul says, indicates that the role of government is limited to matters of justice and public welfare. And it's our responsibility to pay taxes to pay for those services. Even when we have great differences of opinion and misgivings about the directions our government is taking Canada, we still have re that responsibility. But, God is over all and quite properly demands our total allegiance. As we'll read next week, when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, he said that the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. 
every part of my being is to be dedicated to God. I mean, when you add those four things up, there isn't anything left. Everything is to be dedicated to my God, my Redeemer, my King. There's no room for our society to, for that matter, because I belong to God. And He alone has the authority to tell me what to think and what to do. And that's why it's so critical, critically important, that each of us be immersed in the Scriptures so that we may know what God's, may know God's direction and so live that the name of Jesus is exalted with our every breath. We are to live here as resident aliens, as foreigners. We obey the law of the land, but only to that extent in which it is not in conflict with God's law. Now, that in itself is worth a lot of discussion. But another group challenged Jesus. The Sadducees. From what I gathered, they were naturalists, practical atheists, who only accepted as authoritative the first five books of Moses. That is, the first five books of our Old Testament. They lived as if God had little relevance to daily life and only accepted what they could see and hear and personally experience. There was no significant supernatural realm to be concerned about. Matthew 12 and verse 18. The Sadducees came to Him who who say there is no resurrection. And they asked Him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man, uh, that is the man's brother, uh, must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and and the, the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they, are not, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, our God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. 
Now, like the authors of some of the memes circulating on social media, I have no doubt that these Sadducees thought that their argument was clever, that it would display how ridiculous were the claims of Jesus. But what it really showed was how shallow was their own thinking. The law they referenced is found in Deuteronomy 25. And it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now this law accomplished two things in that society. It protected the widow. Remember, a woman in that society had zero standing. She needed a son who could stand for her or a husband. So, you know, she, otherwise she would simply fall in, into poverty. So, this law protected her. And she couldn't inherit property either. So, it protected her and it kept the property of her husband's holdings. It kept that within her husband's tribe. Otherwise, it could be so. But Jesus' response to the supposed conundrum shows how shallow was the thinking and understanding of these Pharisees. For one, they assumed that if there is a resurrection, it would be to a life that parallels this one in every respect. And since they rejected most supernatural events, they couldn't imagine anything of the promises of God for those who are faithful to Him. And Jesus responded and He said, well, in, re- in regard to procreation, that's irrelevant. Marriage is irrelevant. Rather, we would be like the angels in heaven. Not that we would become angels, but we would be like them. Remember that for the moment, we human beings are ranked a little lower than the angels. From Psalm 8, and it's quoted elsewhere in the New Testament. But in eternity, because those of us who have received Jesus as Savior and Lord, because we are actually children of the Almighty God, by virtue of what Jesus has accomplished for us, we who are now a little lower than the angels will actually judge the angels. We may be like them, but we're a whole lot more than they. The other part of Jesus' response concerns the fact of resurrection. 
even from the limited scripture that these guys accepted, God speaks of the patriarchs in the present sense, present tense. Even though they had died centuries before Moses, they're still alive to God. And for us on this side of the cross, we have the proof of the resurrection in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's on that one event that our faith stands or falls. And don't have time now, but we have addressed that event and the compelling evidence that supports our claims for it in several previous messages. And if you've got questions, just ask me. Uh, or go to our website and explore the Easter messages for the past several years. So what do we make of all this? Well, first off, recognize Jesus as the Redeemer. And not just as the Redeemer, but as your Redeemer. His love for you is boundless. And He wants only the very best for you. Come to Him. Don't let anything, not your sense of shame, not the opinions of others, not society's pressure to conform. Don't let anything stand between you and Jesus. And since we have to live in this world but don't belong to this world, <clears throat> we have to set ourselves to activities that show us to be faithful ambassadors of a foreign king. A king above all kings. Prime ministers and presidents. King of kings. And that's our role as ambassadors. We are to represent Him. And then let us allow the resurrection of Jesus and the Scriptures inform our lives and everything about us so that we can exalt the name of Jesus, our King, in everything we are and in everything we do. We hit that. I know when the time comes and we face Him, we'll receive His well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You Thank You for the privilege that You have given to us. Father, You alone know what's going on in each of our hearts. Bring us closer to Yourself. Help us to lean into You. <clears throat> to know 
the the depth and the breadth of the salvation that is ours in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be faithful ambassadors, to represent the Lord Jesus well in our society. Lord, You know the fear that sometimes grips us lest we offend others. But Lord, let Jesus be our our target whether we offend or not. And Lord, keep us close to You and Your Word. Teach us, train us, develop our faith and our commitment to You. And for all of this, Lord, we give You our thanks that we can come to You even in our need, in our emptiness, and know Your grace, know the fullness of Your love. To You be all the praise and honor and glory through Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.